Does the internet help the powerless or the powerful? Does it facilitate democracy and decentralized freedom or authoritarianism and centralized order? Needless to say, the internet can do both. You could even say that the advance of internet technology is something of an arms race between the centralizers and the decentralizers. Lately, the powerful, the authorities, the man, have been learning to use new tools to their advantage. You might call it internet wars, the centralizers strike back. Governments are taking advantage of technological advances, digital platforms, and network effects to exert new forms of control. They're seeking to use centralized digital financial systems to stamp out protests. They're seeking to use centralized stores of data to curtail privacy and police thought and behavior. And they're pressuring centralized speech platforms to favor certain speakers. Welcome once again to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. I'm joined by Ari Cohn, Free Speech Counsel at Tech Freedom, and by Rachel Altman, Tech Freedom's Director of Digital Media. Ari, Rachel, welcome. Happy to be back. Yeah, thank you for having us. I'm so happy to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you both on. Uh, so I have three cases in mind. We can touch on others if you want. But what I've been thinking about is, first of all, the Canadian trucker protests and the government's emergency freeze of some of the uh, protesters' bank accounts. Second, the Earn It Act, a somewhat complicated bill that ostensibly aims to combat child sexual abuse material online but that mainly just threatens encryption and ultimately one's right to store data without its being searched. And finally, the state of Texas's attempt to harass Twitter with a bogus consumer protection investigation, quote unquote, I will say, for deplatforming Donald Trump. At some point a couple of weeks ago, a light bulb went off in my head that these events, though distinct in a lot of ways, form a bit of a pattern. In each instance, the advance of technology has caused information to become easier to collect, it's caused information to become easier to track, or it's caused data to pool at a certain choke point online. And in each instance, a government is trying to exploit that development to exert control. One of the most interesting things to me about the three cases is that this is not really a left thing or a right thing. The three cases involve politicians of the left, the right, and the center, sometimes all at once. It seems like the issue is not ideological along the conventional political lines. It is instead this fight between sort of the forces of control and the forces of resistance. So let's dive in starting with the uh, trucker case, which I, I, I guess has started copycat cases. Uh, I was just talking with a friend who was saying he'd been uh, slowed on a trip this weekend by the new trucker protest in the DMV. Um, the, uh, new Zealand has had such cases. So Rachel, why don't you tell us about the Canadian case? But first, I want to know, because you live in the DMV area, have you run into the copycat protests? I do live in D.C., and it was so funny. Yesterday, my friends were sending me this message 
about the DC trucker convoy because they were supposed to be, you know, on their way to brunch with me again, a very DC hobby. And they were like, Oh, we might be late. There might be this DC trucker convoy. Clearly it's not been nearly as disruptive as the Canadian one. Cause they were definitely able to get there on time. They did not even see anything. So it seems to be a lot smaller in scale than the Canadian version. The Canadian version, mainly in Ottawa has been, pretty enormous in scale and pretty disruptive. I'm sure that a lot of your listeners have already heard about this. It's been, oh my gosh, all over the news. But initially it concerned vaccine mandates for truckers, specifically, I believe, trucking across borders um, when they were trying to come into the United States and vice versa. But as it grew in size, it became closing down border posts and parts of Ottawa. And it also started growing in scope and it's become not only about vaccine mandates, but it also became somewhat of a larger statement on state COVID interventions. So in response to this protest and to this blockade, Trudeau decided to engage the Emergencies Act, which in Canada, according to Business Insider, it means that the government can, and they quote this, temporarily override civil rights, restrict travel, forbid public assembly, and force businesses to act without compensation. So I don't believe they're doing all of the above. I don't believe they were doing all of the above. One way that they were implementing this is they were giving banks the names of supporters of the blockade and having them freeze their bank accounts. That was temporary. It's been reported that those suspensions have been lifted, but it did occur in February. So the police said that they were really just doing this for people whose vehicles were part of the blockade and also people who were influencers in the protests. Not really clear what they meant by influencers. It wasn't super clarified. I mean, when I think of influencers, I think of like people on Instagram. So maybe they're like posting a cute pic background. They're like, I'm at the trucker convoy. Probably not. But that was my mental image when they said that they were, you know, raising the bank accounts of uh, trucker convoy influencers. <laughs> um, well, the order the said, and- you know, any designated person who was yeah. involved directly or indirectly, and my understanding was indirectly was to try and get at people who were donating money to help the convoy going. Um, but go ahead. There, there are mixed reports on that. So there are people who are claiming that they have been cracked down on or had their bank accounts frozen because of just their donations. The police were saying otherwise. The police were saying that they were focusing on these people whose vehicles were part of it and people who were influencers. But the finance minister of Canada, did, she did admit that it's possible that small dollar donors to the convoy also had their bank accounts frozen. She said that it was unlikely, but she said that it was possible. So you can take that statement at face value or not. So I am a child of the California Bay Area. I am no stranger to uh, traffic blocking protests. My internal script from my uh, lived experience is that they're protesting either climate change or wanting to close Guantanamo or uh, oppose the the Iraq war. I'm dating myself, but uh, I I therefore have a inbuilt uh, aversion. I think like most people, to such protests. Nobody really likes having traffic blocked. And they're, in my experience, incredibly counterproductive to whatever cause. And so that's what I bring to this. Although it's interesting because these uh, protesters, uh, again, 
the world is weird. Ideological spectrum is harder and harder to just, you know, put people in neat little boxes. But I don't think these are the same people who were protesting uh, Guantanamo when I was a kid. So I think it's really important as we look at a case like this for each of us to picture these powers being used against, uh, you know, the full spectrum of protesters, uh, protesters we might support, protesters we might not support, however each of us would define that, and then think of how it looks in, in that regard. Ari, that's a discussion you're having constantly on Twitter and elsewhere, our free speech council, constantly dealing with people who think that free speech is something that uh, expands or contracts sort of case by case based on whether they're happy with the individual instance they're looking at. What principles do you see at play here? And what does this case look like to you when you sort of abstract out the specifics and think of, of the powers that are being applied just in general and how they could be used in the future? I mean, if you're talking about the principles at play for the random people shouting out opinions, absolutely none, because pr people are unprincipled. Um, the principles I see that are important here, uh, and this kind of goes to why it's why it is pernicious and, and why it's problematic in my mind, is that these types of actions make it clear that the the advancement of technology is actually making it much easier for the government to do things that we might not want it to do. And to maybe give us a, a comparison in a way, there's a reason you don't talk to cops without a lawyer. There's a reason that, you know, we don't want all of our data being given over to the government. The government gets up to a lot of nonsense and it finds what it wants to find if given the opportunity to find it, even if it completely misconstrues it. Uh, so, you know, you don't talk to a cop without a lawyer because anything you say could be twisted. Um, and, and so the, the, the point of all this is that when the government kind of asserts this overarching kind of authority to control all these different aspects of our lives very easily, uh, there's no there's no telling what the government will get up to eventually. So, you know, these powers can, like you implied, easily be wielded just against people the government just doesn't happen to like, uh, which is a fair number of people. I think you've done a great job of, of encapsulating one way to look at why one might feel uncomfortable looking at this case. Because as I thought about it, it's actually kind of hard for me to put my finger on just why the Canadian trucker case seems pernicious to me. Um, people get arrested for protesting and detained, and it's not like you can use your bank account easily when you are in jail. Uh, so what exactly is the problem? Is it that the banks are private companies that are being enlisted into this? Is it uh, just as you point out, kind of it, it's more control than the government should have in trying to combat disorder. There are simply limits. It should. And it's it not just should... that, though. Go ahead. It's, it's all it's the ease with which these data choke points, as you point out, make it easy for the government to do it. It's not it's not just that they can do it. It's that they can do it with such relative ease because of the way that all of our information and all of our finances are just so bottlenecked that you can just put down two roadblocks and basically block everything. 
Well, I guess maybe I'm splitting hairs finally here, but is the problem with it being easy that the, the simple answer is, is maybe there is in fact a degree to which the government should actually have to deal with protests with kind of one hand tied behind its back because they're just, we're sort of uncomfortable with government power. Uh, and yet I, I almost have a slightly more dystopian thing about it. it. It's that this exercise of power is so hidden. It's so antiseptic. It's a way to control surreptitiously. We don't physically confront the aggressors or the or, or aggressive protesters. We it's almost like we sedate people. It's similar to getting uh, youth delinquency under control with pharmaceutical drugs and video games. Okay, so now they're not making trouble and doing graffiti under the bridge, but they're just in their home playing World of Warcraft. And how do we feel about that? And with kids, it's drugs and video games. And with adults, it's locking bank accounts. And there's just something slightly brave new world about that. And it's hard because that almost sounds like celebrating disorder and a little bit of anarchy. And am I really comfortable with that either? I don't know. I think it's just a very fuzzy area where it gives me discomfort in a way that it's hard to put my finger on, but there is something dystopian about it. Well, I guess a corollary to that is you can imagine that these interventions that are not, you know, arresting somebody that are just freezing their bank account temporarily instead, you could imagine that those are less severe than an arrest, for example. It's like a warning sign before you would arrest someone, maybe. But at the same time, it's like, why do you feel the need to freeze their bank account if you wouldn't even arrest them? Because some of these people, they could be arrested if the government wanted to. For the people who wouldn't be arrested if the government wanted to, for those who there wouldn't be grounds to arrest them, to put them in jail or to even fine them, if you wouldn't do that, then why do you need to freeze their bank account? And I mean, at the same time, they're, some of the ways that they're cracking down, I mean, they're now applying these rules that are usually meant for terrorists and money launderers and their financing to cover the crowdfunding of the trucker convoy. And so at that point, it just seems a little bit extreme that they're applying these things to these people when they haven't even been arrested. Like, yeah, you can't use your bank account in jail, but okay, you're out of jail. You do need to use your bank account, so. Or your family needs to use your bank account while you're in jail. Your family too. And it's like, you can't assume guilt by association either. So that's another layer to it. It's just, that's part of why it's nefarious is, is similar to what you said. It is more, invisible and while maybe as a substitute for arresting somebody in that case they're either dangerous or they're not yeah that was one issue here is that in canada this was allowed under the emergencies act without court order and there was a high degree of cooperation between the government and the banks to do this I try to fight against hyperbole in our discourse in my small spitting on the fire uh, way. So I don't want to overstate this. I don't want to imply, oh, we're headed toward uh, soft totalitarianism. Uh, I, I think every, there's just too many people who are incentivized to make every, to, tur to turn it up to 11 in every case. With that caveat uh, put in there, Rachel, 
do you see this kind of case as an incipient uh, sign of a social credit system that we need to be worried about? I mean, even some commentators who are are not rabid right wing, you know, they're not Fox News talking. It's I, I think of say Damon Linker, who's a moderate guy, very level headed, and he wrote an entire piece saying, "Yeah, we need to take seriously the notion that this is social credit type." behavior. Uh, do you agree with that? What do you think? I think we'll have to look at the staying power of these sorts of things. I mean, this this freeze on the bank accounts, it was temporary. I would be interested to see if there are any impacts on the trucker protesters on, for example, their ability to get credit in the future, because I think that's probably a better indicator. But I do think some people are acting like this crackdown is you know, completely unprecedented, these violations of people's rights. And I feel like we've seen quite a few violations of people's rights in, in protests over the last several years. And it's not only this one, and it's happened in the United States too. So I don't think it's a completely new thing. It might be a little bit more social credit in the sense that they're cracking down on people's bank accounts for something that's much less extreme, um, at least in my perception, than terrorism. But like I said, I think that the permanence of these things and the staying power is an important element of the distinction between an emergency action and a social credit system. It does seem like another sign of, of those who say, you know, the dystopia that we need to fear if or, or be wary of and, and try to avoid. It's not actually 1984. That's the cheap, lazy one. It's, it's Brave New World where... We have a distinction uh, between safety and danger, and most people are just all too comfortable to take measures to do to, to get the safety feeling. And uh, in Brave New World, everyone is totally happy. They're blissed out on their Soma, and the savage is out there, and he rebels against the system. And it's no coincidence, in my opinion, that when you do student polls and look into this, a far higher percentage of students these days, uh, when they read Brave New World, they go, what's the problem? Everybody's happy. Everybody conforms. That sounds good. They don't see it as a dystopian tale, which I don't know how strong my normative statements are. Maybe we should all just be happy. But it, it, this case is interesting. I find it complicated. I find it layered. I don't have really firm convictions in, in, in any direction other than that it makes me just sort of vaguely uncomfortable. So let's move on to the Earn It Act. Uh, like many federal bills, it has a ridiculous moral alarmist name. It's called Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act. And I can barely contain my scorn for uh, one of its main proponents, Senator Richard Blumenthal, because at every turn he, he's trying to use this to gin up a moral panic. But before I go on more of a rant, Ari, you're the real expert on this bill. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, um, I could spend four hours telling you about it. Um, it is a wellspring of terrible ideas. Um, well, originally it was called Earn It Act because it was set as basically a precondition on which social media platforms and other uh, interactive computer services could earn back their Section 230 protections. That presented a problem which 
they haven't really gotten rid of, but they got rid of that part, but it's still called earn it, which doesn't really even make sense. So I, I share your uh, disdain for the name as well as the bill. Um, fundamentally what it, what its sponsors claim that it is doing is trying to uh, force platforms to combat child sexual abuse material and child sexual exploitation material online. Um, it doesn't do a great job of that for reasons I'll get into, uh, but the way in which it does it is that it essentially opens up liability for uh, CSAM and CSE claims under federal law, but also under state law. Uh, and it allows basically civil and, and criminal uh, cases and prosecutions in all 50 jurisdictions for things that would also be a violation of, um, or sorry, for activity that would constitute a violation of federal law, but minus the, the intent requirement. So what that means is that states could impose a requirement that instead of uh, under federal law, where you have to prove that a platform, say, was distributing child pornography uh, with actual knowledge, uh, a state might pass a law or have a law already saying they need only be reckless or negligent. Uh, and that's a big problem. And I suspect that the real driver here is encryption uh, is what you're getting at here. The, the thing that is slightly frustrating about this bill, it's just the perfect wedge issue. Who could be against combating the spread of child sexual abuse material online? Uh, but it is sort of this model that if adopted here, you just know politicians are going to want to use everywhere. Because as Rihanna Pfefferkorn has said, encryption, you know, it can be used for good things. It can be used for bad things. You can't just wave a magic wand and cut out the bad things. And the ultimate sign that Blumenthal is fundamentally not serious in what he is doing is his claim that the bill will only punish misuse of encryption, which is such a, I, I, I don't really have words for how, how much that misunderstands what encryption is and what it does as if, well, we're only gonna lift the encryption uh, to check for, you know, one category of bad thing. Well, it's not, it's not encryption anymore. It, and. Right. And, and earlier in that same markup, when he said that, he said, we are not trying to go after encryption. It's kind of difficult to tell whether he's being dishonest about it, or if he just doesn't understand that encryption is pretty much an all or nothing proposition. Uh, there is no, the point of encryption is that there is no way to tell what the content is, what the material is. Therefore, there is absolutely no way to determine whether encryption is being, quote unquote, misused. Um, I guess to, to get a little bit technical for a second, it'd probably be helpful if people understood how the bill attacks encryption. Um, there was concern uh, in the original bill and this bill that uh, encryption, that use of encryption would be used basically as an independent basis of liability. The platforms would be subject to liability whenever there was some kind of offending content because they used encryption and couldn't tell what that material was. Um, Senator Leahy in the original bill introduced an amendment to try and get around that and, and protect the use of encryption. And in this version, the 2022 version of the bill, they 
made overtures towards that and then completely undermined it. They said, you can't have encryption be an independent basis for liability, but what you can do is introduce use of encryption as evidence to prove other parts of an of a different claim. So for instance, under a state law that only requires recklessness, uh, you could introduce the use of encryption to prove that a platform was reckless in allowing its services to be used to transmit child pornography, for instance. That has the fundamental, very obvious effect of saying you shouldn't use end-to-end encryption. Uh, so really it, it's, it's a direct stab at encryption and they, try to make it seem like they weren't, but it's very clearly their intent. Uh, And still worse, the bill just completely doesn't address the fact that states uh, or even the federal government eventually could be requiring uh, client-side monitoring by way of this uh, imposition of liability. Uh, They could basically say, oh, well, you, you know, you didn't scan as Apple now does, uh, certain content before it was encrypted or after it was decrypted. Uh, and therefore, for instance, again, you were reckless. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of monkey business in this. Yeah, a real tie between the Canada case in this case to me is just the government's infinite appetite. And part of this is optics and playing to a crowd. Infinite appetite for saying, we are just going after insert bad inflammatory thing here. Um, And it always ends up sounding ridiculous. It has something of, you know, well, we're forced free speech unless it's bad speech, unless it's speech we disagree with. We're, We're for encryption unless the encryption gets used for bad things and acting as if, you know, we've got these experts on the Hill who can craft policy with this scalpel. Well, they'll just surgically remove the bad thing and lead us to a better tomorrow. Um, The people crafting these bills are just not that competent. And in their defense, nobody could, it's just a misunderstanding of what's possible often. In the House Energy and Commerce hearing on a number of bills not related to earn it, uh, just the other week, they had this, they brought in specifically this law enforcement officer who spent so many of his answers about these bills talking about how uh, encryption stifles law enforcement and how it's bad and how Congress needs to act. And that was pretty clearly one of the reasons that he was invited. I mean, I'm not sure that it's necessarily a lack of competence more than it is an obfuscation of actual intent. Well, yeah, the the moral grandstanding, and maybe we'll get to that a bit more with the content moderation, is probably what gets me so heated here. Um, Taking a step back from from the ledge here. So, you know, the, the fundamental goal here is a laudable one, combating CSAM. And it does have to be admitted that that a lot of the fear here is exactly the slippery slope. And it's a very real slippery slope. It's not one of the fallacious ones in my mind. But um, so we've gone and I will again allude to uh, Rihanna because she had a great treatment of this in a Tech Dirt podcast with, with Mike Masnick. You know, she said that it's troubling to see uh, we've gone from wanting sort of surveillance of public posts on social media and we're moving down the stack and now the pro- we, we got to monitor private conversations and DMs and now we're seeing 
Um, you know, it's about services that companies are providing to other companies, you know, client, we want client side scanning when you put data in the cloud. And so the creep against people's privacy is happening very quickly. Now it's getting to the point where, you know, uh, there was a time when data was on your hard drive in your computer in your home. And, you know, if you were a, a perv and you brought your computer in to get fixed and they found the child porn on it, you were in trouble as you absolutely should be. Um, now with everything on the cloud, though, the temptation is just so strong to say, well, we're just going to hash search for, you know, insert this or that kind of wrong thing. We see it in these hearings on the Hill, this constant effort to define danger down, to expand the definition of misinformation or just sort of stuff I don't like. Uh, am I overreacting, Rachel? I don't think so. And I think that it's a really difficult discussion to have because like you said, they have a really laudable goal. And I don't necessarily even believe that the lawmakers who are promoting this legislation are trying to you know, hijack a discussion about encryption. They're trying to like, crack down on encryption in general. I think a lot of them genuinely like do care about rooting out this material and helping law enforcement prosecute it. So I can understand that. At the same time, they have to also realize that there will also be downstream effects, like the ones that you and Ari have delineated that do not only apply to these perverts and to these offenders, and they'll apply to everyday people and their use of encryption and their privacy and communications. It reminds me of a lot of these kind of tough on crime efforts that you would see too in like the 80s and 90s where they pick these wedge issues and it's like, well, how could you not want to be tough on crime? If you're weak on crime, that doesn't look good to anyone. And, and similarly with this, it becomes this wedge issue, like you said. Nobody wants to be weak on child sexual abuse material. It's really, you know, it seems like an inexcusable thing to do, but there are other ways to you know, prosecute these things. And additionally, I mean, the Earn It Act, as it's currently written, can make it more difficult to prosecute these things because of Fourth Amendment concerns. So this doesn't mean if you if you don't support the Earn It Act, you're not tough on these things. But when it's, it's roped into a wedge issue like this, rhetorically, it becomes so challenging. Well, and this is just follows the, the, the general uh, thought process of, of bills like these is we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. Uh, and that is the that that is what every think of the children bill. Uh, that is the thought process that they follow. Um, I wouldn't say for better or for worse because it's, it's pretty much always for worse. Um, but but you but we're talking about client side monitoring, and I think there's a, an important point there. Is uh, you were talking about scanning, you know, hashes. There's the problem that the you know once the capability to do that exists, um, what else are we going to hash and search for? Uh, that is one problem. But there's also the other problem of, and this was a concern when Apple announced it, that you know those systems could be breached or misused or forced into service by authoritarian parties in other countries, um, and. Apple says that for its part, that it has safeguards in place uh, to protect against that kind of misuse. So for instance, China couldn't you know, search for hashes of pictures of, of the tank man in Tiananmen Square or, or what have you. But first of all, 
we don't know if those are going to succeed and the power of, of governments to compel things and the power of say hackers to get in and do something it, you know is unknown but there's also the problem of all the smaller companies without the resources of a company like apple are not going to be able to successfully protect these kinds of invasive systems from malicious actors. There's going to be holes. And once those holes exist, they just continuously get breached wider and wider and wider. Um, and yeah, it, it's a slippery slope argument, but, but it's there. Yeah, the, it does not make the same kind of headlines to say uh, badger the Department of Justice about why are you not enforcing the current laws well enough why aren't you investigating the think of the children line is much more useful as a legislator to get you the attention that uh, as a legislator in our modern day you crave and in these kinds of cases i often find myself going back to uh in my mind to the image of i believe it was joe lieberman holding up a orange toy video game gun and with grave seriousness talking about how you know violent video games were destroying the youth and i think we see a lot of variations on that theme so let's yeah, hope like that- chuck schumer saying that he wanted to eat a tide pod because they look delicious well they are delicious anyway <laughs> like, that's, that's not even like you can't make that a societal problem like that's just a, a you problem senator schumer go go see a therapist and talk about it well um let's uh let's hope that the authorities are effective at combating the scourge of of csam but uh this doesn't seem like a very effective way to go about it um so let's roll into our content moderation topic. Such a vast topic. We talk about this a lot on the show, but one case in particular I wanted to highlight today is uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's investigation of Twitter. I this this case because I'm not directly involved with it. I'll use the word. It amuses me to no end, but it's actually kind of infuriating. Uh, Texas claims that they were investigating Twitter long before the events, uh, you know, the riot on January 6th. But uh, the way it played out was the riot occurs on January 6th. President Trump uh, stokes the mob in a couple different ways online on social media, including some tweets that were highly sympathetic to the riot. He gets booted from Twitter for life. Days later, Ken Paxton uh, at the office of the attorney general in Texas announces an investigation of Twitter uh, into their content moderation policies. And as has happened in several of these cases, the powers that be play one game on Twitter talking about how they are fighting the thought police and the bias against conservatives who are being treated like, you know, uh, dissidents in uh, CCP controlled China. And it's all about President Trump and then play another game in court saying, well, this is just a very neutral investigation of consumer protection practices. And the real smoking gun here, as far as I'm concerned, is that Ken Paxson was actually giving an interview a month after the investigation was launched. And he said that his office was investigating the whole issue of the president being deplatformed. That was 
him, as far as I'm concerned, admitting to the true motive of his investigation. Well, uh, Twitter sues in California federal court, and they've actually had a terribly difficult time shaking the case. The district court dismissed the suit as unripe. Uh, recently, last week, uh, the Ninth Circuit affirmed that dismissal, saying that Twitter basically needs to wait until the uh, demand for information from Texas. Texas basically launched this investigation first by demanding a bunch of documents from Twitter about their content moderation policies, very sweeping demands for all kinds of uh, info on how Twitter makes its decisions and what its policies are. They could go to Texas state court and resist after Texas tries to enforce those demands, but they cannot do it in federal court right now in California because, said the Ninth Circuit, to resolve the challenge Twitter brings, alleging that the case is uh, one of First Amendment retaliation, you would first have to resolve the validity of Texas's consumer protection allegations. And I do not get it because what Texas is saying is that Twitter has basically made misrepresentations about its content moderation policies to the public, claiming that it is not biased against conservatives when it really is, or so Texas's theory would be. When what Twitter is saying is this is a very isolated, specific instance, they booted Donald Trump from the platform for stoking or egging on uh, an insurrectionary attack on the Capitol. And Ken Paxton, a close political ally of Donald Trump, is investigating them in retaliation for Twitter having done that to his buddy, uh, which I see those issues as totally distinct. And so that's a long windup to all of these, you know, facts, but it, it gets to the same theme here where that we've been talking about throughout the episode where we're kind of, maybe you could call it like the height of the web two era. You know, a lot of speech is on these platforms. We've discussed at length on this show, how they are not public forums in a legal sense, but it is true that a lot of our speech is centralized on Facebook and on Twitter. So there are these targets now that if you're the government and you want to get your speaker special treatment, there's a limited number of, of entities that you can go after and twist arms. Ari, thoughts? Oh, I got plenty of thoughts about Ken Paxton. I mean, the government investigating... <laughs> First Amendment protected activity is, in my book, just always a bad thing. It's always wrong. Uh, I hate it when congressmen and senators jawbone platforms into trying to get them to make you know, certain moderation decisions. I don't like when Congress asks platforms to explain their moderation decisions any more than I would like them asking the New York Times why they did or didn't publish something. Um, and I don't like... Ken Paxton, who is just a widely acknowledged ding dong, uh, you know, sitting here harassing a social media platform based on, you know, what its First Amendment protected activity was. Uh, it's, I mean, it goes beyond the distastefulness of, say, legislative jawboning and into just flat out speech chilling. The Ninth Circuit decision I found particularly distressing um, 
And as I said myself on Twitter, I, I really try to avoid the lazy game of, well, the panel had uh, appointees of this or that party president. Therefore, of course, they reached this or that result. I find that often that is uh, misused, that cases are more nuanced than that. But I'm sorry, in this case, you have three Trump-appointed judges completely missing the fact that the dispute at issue in the case is whether a Trump-aligned state AG was unconstitutionally carrying water for President Trump. And in order to miss that that's the issue, they sort of go out of their way to make the further uh, mistake of saying that Twitter's content moderation policies are totally fair game for investigation because Twitter has said that they are, they have made statements about it. That Twitter actually would have been better off if they were just like, we don't tell you all we content, moderate content. You know, your, your material is up or it's down. It's a total mystery to you. We're not going to tell you about it. And Ninth Circuit is saying, whoops for you. You told us a bit about how you do your content moderation. So now you can be investigated as a consumer protection matter. I mean, try that with any publication and see how it sounds. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like another First Amendment problem in and of itself. It's that the whole idea that if you speak out, then your other speech is therefore unprotected is absurd. It also, you know, maybe it has to do with the fact that there were Trump appointees. Um, it could also equally be that it was just a results-oriented approach, regardless of, of who it was. It, I mean, I, I, I think that you're right. It's hard to ignore you know, the fact that they were Trump appointees, but, you know, we, we see this in a lot of cases, you know, we saw this uh, results oriented approach in the Texas Supreme court uh, decision about um, section 230 under SESTA FOSTA. I mean, courts sometimes just have a particular outcome in mind and, and do whatever they can to get there. I, I really, really, really disagreed with the court's dismissiveness of, of, White versus Lee and and all of the, the the chilling aspects of it. That was the, one of the most egregious parts to me. So I've given Ken Paxton a nice swift kick in the shins, which he deserves, and I've I've questioned this Ninth Circuit panel, which has some uh, a couple of uh, very bright judges on it. And I I don't want to overstate the case. I'm sure they were acting in good faith and have their reasons for what they were doing. But but anyway. Now I get to turn around and, and as we discussed earlier, it drives me nuts going in the other direction. Uh, some of these hearings, we had a House Energy and Commerce uh, Committee hearing recently, RU live tweeted. Uh, some of the rhetoric, it just uh, drives me completely nuts. I used the term earlier of defining danger down. And there is, it borders on hysteria um, going in the exact opposite direction of the Republican folks that we were just kicking, this left-wing tendency to see content moderation as this activity that needs to be um, sort of co-opted to just being, uh, um, I don't even know what the words would be, but basically content moderation must be a cultivation of the democratic worldview and we should actually get to live online in a left-wing garden uh, is kind of the degree that you get to it. it and the government should set the parameters and control it. Yeah. It's, so it's literally uh, they're trying to get 
that that private companies just be these this subsidiary of some government agency. It's crazy. Well, you've already partly answered my question. Not for the first time this episode. I will ask. Am I getting carried away? Okay, Ari, this time. No, you're not. You're absolutely not getting carried away. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And it's coming in so many different forms. And it is coming absolutely with the hysteria as you describe it. This is just the latest in a series of moral panics. We had video games. We had movies. We had violent TV shows. We had comic books. All kinds of things are just the next big threat to our children and our way of life. Um, And surely they don't really actually pan out like that. Um, But that's not going to stop them from, you know, being used as wedges by by the government to step in and and increase its own power and authority. There was one line during the hearing that, you know, these platforms, their entire business model is feeding people ever more disinformation. It's just, I'm sorry, you're not even, you're just not even trying at that point. Um, it, but this gets back to my issue now that we've gone to one side and gone to the other, and I could go on. I, I won't dive into my whole issue with uh, the Surgeon General and the White House press secretary trying to jawbone the entities and how, uh, to be clear, I do not think they've crossed this line, but they just love to flirt with this line of basically co-opting these platforms and making them into state entities acting uh, through government pressure. Um that, that is not where we are right now, but uh, the government seems not nearly worried enough about crossing that line. They should be much more worried than they are. Um, so when has the government ever been worried about crossing a line? Uh, yeah, well, so we've gone in both directions. It gets me back to my point that power can be used um, and abused by either party. And I see a larger dynamic going on between... Um, those who want conformity and control and those who are seeking to maintain freedom and decentralization. And I do see a lot of what's going on with these technological issues as not fitting into our neat, shall we say, 20th century ideological buckets. I think there's more going on. I mention him on the show all the time. Uh, We had him on the show, Martin Gurry, Um, I revert to his book often, The Revolt of the Public, because I think it gets at a lot of the, it's insightful as to what's happening. And, you know, he talks about the fact that we're seeing not really like a coherent elite ideology playing out. What we're seeing is this sort of blind impulse at control by elites because they gravitate instinctively toward wanting order and seeing the world as broken. And instead of just understanding that things are kind of inherently chaotic and that's just part of freedom, they want to put things in their neat little buckets and basically make the peasants behave themselves. And gosh darn it, they keep talking to each other. It's so frustrating. And Gurry gets into how that's sort of this futile battle. But, um, and to name another thinker who's interesting and out there, um, man of the left, Freddie DeBoer, but he talks a lot about how we're seeing a total breakdown of these neat ideological categories. Our culture is just turning into sort of who do you sneer at? Who sneers at you? Uh, He said that in talking about our old definitions of left and right, we're suffering from just total definitional collapse. So now that I've kind of gotten 
deep out there and and uh, I've truly fallen off the ledge. I will turn it over to Rachel to to clean it up. No. Um Rachel, how do you think we got here? Like is our what is going on with our discourse? Why is it so I'm well why is it so insipid? And do you have any thoughts on how we we sort of climb out of this sneer sneer discourse? I mean, I think in many ways it's a lot of people just reacting at once to fairly rapid change and acting as if everything is completely new when a lot of the quote unquote new things we've seen with the internet and the spread of greater information and connection is just new iterations of things that already existed. Like this whole misinformation discourse, people act as if people have never like been wrong before or heard incorrect information before. It's so bizarre to me, like probably for several hundred years, people heard all sorts of wrong things, not even for several hundred years, for like essentially until the internet really. And especially, I mean, even before that, until the widespread proliferation of access to information through libraries and such, but even more so like before the internet in general. Most people heard all sorts of incorrect information from any kind of source all throughout their life, and they really had no way to fact check it. And now it's like maybe people are hearing more like incorrect information from social media or something, but they also have way more ways to verify whether that information is correct when otherwise they wouldn't have. And so this whole idea of like misinformation as this new and terrible beast, it just it strikes me as a little bit bizarre when, you know, there has been misinformation always and a lot more of it and arguably more dangerous. But I think when it comes to the polarization and staring at each other, that's another thing that's like not entirely new. People think that it's just since the Trump administration or something. But I think a lot of it comes from having this moral outrage over what the other party is doing and not only acting morally outraged on one specific topic, but just thinking that if they believe differently or they have these ideological differences, then they are literally betraying America. And we've seen this way before, I mean, like with McCarthyism during the 20th century. And we even saw it before, you know, social media was big. I mean, I think of the kind of early example of cancel culture, which was when the Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, were criticizing the Iraq war in like 2003. And People were so angry about this. And even though it was kind of a policy, a foreign policy concern, and not necessarily, you know, they were pro the other side in the Iraq war, you know, people people portrayed it as if the Dixie Chicks were like betraying America and they hated America. And I feel like that has accelerated. And now there's there's this, you know, deep thought, I think, on both sides of the aisle that whoever is on the opposite side of the discourse not only disagrees on you know how to improve the country but actively hates the country and that's why they're doing what they're doing and so i think that it's difficult to decelerate that obviously i think that you know certain political figureheads who on both sides are overly sensationalistic and participate in this rhetoric are deeply unhelpful but 
I don't entirely know how we'll get out of this. I think that in some ways people just need to get more used to the internet and realize it's not actually that novel in terms of the social phenomena we're seeing. So one thing I heard threaded throughout your answer is finally someone on this episode has pushed back and said, Corbin, you're getting carried away. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> it all started with the Gutenberg Bible, uh, Rachel is saying. No, I'm actually... I'm kind of into rad trad uh, writing. Um, I, I don't say that in any way mean like Paul Kingsnorth has a great substack, um, And I read a lot of Rod Dreher and uh, I don't buy into it, but I, I, I don't know. For some reason, I just find it interesting. And you see some yeah, interesting, <laughs> you find some interesting stuff on that, um, on that writing. Um, sometimes to the effect, you know, like where did it all go wrong? And sometimes it gets into a bit of a contest of like, how far back can you pinpoint where it all went wrong? And I used to kind of think that the, the outer limit was, you know, the publishing of the vernacular Bible, which people have complained about since like at least Joseph de Maistre and like people blame the French Revolution on it. And but uh, I've seen it taken back to uh, Occam's razor. It's all Occam's fault back in the, I hope I can, I believe 12th century, I want to say, you know, the guy is basically responsible for starting our loss of the enchanted world. He's the guy who started us uh, down the path towards disenchanted materialism. And we were doomed from that moment. Um, well, that's something. <laughs> did you ever, did you see last summer, the whole Lindy discourse with uh, Paul Scalise and like his, his thesis was a lot about that. I mean, it was, it was somewhat the opposite in that we can learn a lot from what withstood the test of tradition and lasted a long time. I think his litmus test was over 400 years or something, but he would always call back when, when people were very outraged about something or whether they were acting as if it was so novel he would always call back and be like, actually, this is a lot older than you think. And it didn't always mean that it was positive. But like, for example, I think there was something going around on the internet last summer about, I don't know, some like prostitution related situation. And people were very outraged. And Paul Callis is like, this is Lindsay. It's like the oldest profession. And it, it was just a very entertaining discourse on all sides, but definitely ropes into that same thread. Although I wouldn't say that Lindy Man is a rad trap. Um, one I've mentioned on this show before how much, how fun it would be to fast forward 500 years, even if just for a moment, because we now look at, say, the Catholic Protestant divide during the Thirty Years' War, and it's all a little bit confusing. Well, unless you're like a rad trad who wants integralism, as the, you know, the, the internet has those folks too. Uh, oh my God, they're 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 all Christians, and they're butchering each other over uh, the right way to understand transubstantiation. That's so odd, but. You have to assume that some of our current debates with that level of time removed are going to look just as silly. I mean, some of them look that silly to me right now. Well, uh, this has been I, I think this is a record for my degree of, of ranting. It was a bad day to do it. I'm sorry my voice is not so great. Uh, uh, de devotees of the show will know I have three very young children. They are little Petri dishes, so I'm often quite sick. So thank you for bearing with my, my poor voice. Ari, 
Can you give us some some optimism? What what's a closing thought you can get us out on? Um, that's not just me ranting. You're coming to me for optimism. It's a I, weird choice. I thought I'd go for a total re vibe <clears throat> shift. See if I could spur one. I don't think you can. I'm I'm I, you know, I try not to be a pessimist, although I, I am rather cynical. Um, but you know, the fact of the matter is, these cries are just getting louder and louder and louder. Um, you know. Congress is increasingly doing its performative nonsense. Um, and eventually, despite Congress's, you know, best attempts, one of these things might actually pass. Uh, and, you know, it's it, the only the thing that gives me hope, I guess I'll say this. Here's this. How's this for optimism? The moral panics have subsided in the past, um, you know, Tipper Gore didn't succeed uh, in the end, ultimately. Uh, you know, we still have movies and video games and television, and it's all fine. Uh, but Snoop Dogg so- has moved on to the Super Bowl halftime show. So on a long enough timeline... And- and probably getting really high with Martha Stewart, which I just think is the most charming thing ever. Um, but, you know, we've, we've resisted these moral panics before, but at the same time, our, our discourse, it feels stronger now because everyone is so terminally online and everyone is so in a fever pitch about everything and we're more polarized than we, than we ever were. You know, it, it feels different it feels like it poses more of a threat so i try to maintain my optimism by saying the past moral we've escaped past moral panics and we can escape this too but that's really all the optimism i've got for you well i actually wrote a piece uh last week in the bulwark that touched on this a bit my best stab is to say that uh Although day to day, everything seems to be who do you sneer at and who sneers at you? A little bit of gratitude for the very concept of liberal democracy, as slightly cheesy as that sounds. Sounds a little bit less cheesy now that we see war raging uh, in Ukraine. We have a First Amendment. We have a Fourth Amendment. And for all the flaws in our society, we have uh, independent courts uh, don't, uh, people are going to sneer at that immediately. And I even, even I earlier in the episode, oh, Trump appointees, but no, I mean, by the standards of court systems throughout history, we have independent courts uh, who uphold those laws and who are pretty good as technology changes. You know, the main theme of this show being the centralizers versus decentralizers. They've been pretty good at keeping the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment up to date as technology has changed. Um, You know, one case I would bring up just as an example is Kilo versus United States. You know, oh, we've got these great uh, uh, new devices that can sense the heat coming off the outside of a house. So now we can know if there are uh, lamps inside growing, uh, you know, helping drugs, marijuana plants grow or whatever. And the court saying, well, that's a fun little gadget you've got there. The Fourth Amendment still applies. Uh, You could cite very similar cases for the First Amendment. So there is a good chance that our civil liberties will keep up with technology. You have to stay vigilant, but um, it's a a fight that is joined, and there's good reason to be optimistic. Uh, We'll have to devote maybe a, a different episode to that side of the coin. Well, Ari, Rachel, this has been great fun, if not entirely sunny. You're both welcome on the show anytime. I've loved having you. 
I love being here. So do I. Thank you so much for having us on. And one thing I'm going to try to get back into the habit of doing, uh, this is the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love if you take a moment to give that five-star rating uh, wherever you listen to us. It helps us out. And while you go do that, I'll start preparing the next episode. I'm Corbin Barthol. Till next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.